We're going to jump right into this. We've been into this series called Identity Crisis, and we're trying to discover the identity of the church. As we get into this a little bit today, we're going to take it just a step further than where we've been, but let's start with this. What is the definition of identity? It's the collective aspect or the set of characteristics by which a thing is definitively recognizable or known. It's the set of behavioral or personal characteristics by which an individual is recognized as a member of a group. Or it's the quality or condition of being the same as something else. What are we looking at? What does a Christian look like? What does a Christian sound like? What does a Christian act like? There's opinions, but the truth is, is where do we get the metric by which we judge this against? Because if you ask one group of, of supposed Christians, and I'm saying that loosely, so don't overthink that. But they'll tell you, man, if you sin one time after you're saved, if you're going 61 and a 60 and were killed in a car crash, you're going to hell. And you've got the other side of the equation, which that one's pretty, pretty far out there. You've got the other side, it's like, it doesn't matter what you've done, what you believe, where you are. Jesus loves everybody just the same. He made you the way you are. You be you. You're good. So where do we draw the line? What should a born-again believer sound like? What should a born-again believer act like? And the reality is, is we've got to go back to Scripture to determine that. Because your opinion and my opinion are all irrelevant if it's not founded in something bigger than our opinion. I don't know if you know this, but opinions are all over the map. It's interesting that Scripture was written about Jewish or by Jewish men. Because the one thing I can tell you about Jewish men, you put two Jews in a room, there will be three opinions. They're all, they argue about everything. Everything. Perhaps you had a relative that way. I would have sworn growing up my mother was Jewish. I'd have sworn. Because it didn't matter what it was, she took the alternative position. And so much so, that if I began to agree with what she was saying, she switched sides. Some of y'all are nodding, so you know what I'm talking about. I'm not alone. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That means that whatever we were, we no longer are. We are separated from that distinct, we're no longer that same person. That person died. That person no longer exists. This person is now new. We have now done something in our lives. We have taken on the name of of Jesus. In Exodus chapter 20 verse 7 it says you should not take the name of your, the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now as I've said last week and I've said this multiple times and we went through this in, in detail is that most people take that you don't use God's name in a curse word. But that's not what this is saying. As you study scripture you realize that when you take on the name of Yahweh as an Israelite there was certain expectation that must be met. One of the things that came with that was the keeping of the law. That means on the Sabbath, you rested. That means you didn't go out to your garden. You didn't do all the things. You didn't walk very far. If you've been to Israel on the Sabbath day today, they have two sets of elevators. And the elevators will stop on every floor. Do you know why? Because if you push the button, that's considered work. That's pretty dumb. So now they've got to stop on every floor. So what they do is they will wait until a Gentile walks in. And they'll say, floor 23, please. And let them push the button. There's a workaround for everything. You see, whatever it was that made them distinct, and they had taken on the name of God, and therefore they were to live up to the name of God, and what happened? They didn't do it. As we went through this last week, you saw time and time again where Israel 
failed their commitment to God. They had blasphemed his name throughout all the earth amongst the Gentiles. And God has said, I'm not doing this for your benefit, but for my name's sake. The name above all names. You see, the thing that we've got to get past is this idea of, of, okay, I'm in, I'm born again, that's it. Well, that's wonderful. But it is making him your Lord and not just your Savior. When he becomes your Lord, he gets to dictate your life. And that dictation comes very clearly through Scripture. This is where we get the ideas of what we believe and why we believe it. The church has done a wonderful job of teaching the what's, and we've done a horrible job of teaching the why's. Because a lot of people know what they believe, but they have no idea why they have come to that conclusion. I had a conversation just, I think it was probably Friday night, with a, a, a man up in his uh, early 60s, who is struggling right now in his faith because it dawned on him he has no idea why he believes what he believes about God. None whatsoever. His entire life he's been told what to believe, and he's just accepted that. But now he's, it's not like he is doubting whether God exists or anything like that, but he has no foundation to these beliefs. He was told them, he accepted them, he just moved on with life. He never asked these questions. And today, we've got a generation that's growing up in the church. They're saying, well, I'm a Christian. Good. What does that mean? I went to a camp a few years ago, and I was teaching on how we know the gospel is true, and we had to get down to what the gospel is. And that question is something I ask every time I go to these things, is what is the gospel? You know what the number one answer is? It's the good news. You know what my response is? Great. What's the news, and why is it good? And most of the time, they can't give you any foundational answer. They couldn't turn to Scripture and say, here is the gospel. They'll say it was Jesus or Jesus died. Those are true. But the thing is, is Paul says, this is the gospel. That Jesus died, he was buried, and then he was resurrected. He tells us. You see, the foundation is missing today. We built the house on sand. And we've got to get back to building the foundation. Because today, we have taken on the name of Jesus. But are we representing him? Are we doing our part? When somebody looks at our lives, are we representing him? They say, that, that man, that woman, that's a born-again believer. Because in the face of crisis, they respond by X. In the face of good times, they respond this way. They're generous, they're patient, all of these different things that go with this. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, it says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is. He's sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Now here's the thing. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. That's what Amy was talking about today. Is that we get so caught up in the world around us, and we stand our ground, and we take these moral stances, and those are good. We need to do that. But we're so passionate about that, and yet when it comes to sharing the gospel, we don't give a tenth of that energy. I hate to say it. You know who are great evangelists? Mormons. Mormons are wonderful. You know what they do that you don't? They go knock on their neighbor's door. They'll go knock on somebody else's neighbor's door. 
I saw a Facebook post just the other day. There's a couple of Mormons in our area, and I say in our area, in the three-state area, and they're saying, hey, does anybody need help doing anything? We've got some free time. We'll do yard work, clean your garage. We'll do whatever you need that we're capable of doing. And people are like, oh, man, I'd love it if you could come help me. You know what they're doing? They don't care about their dirty garage. They want to propagate their gospel. Unfortunately, it's not the good one. How many of us have taken time to do that? Most of us haven't. You know why? Because we're too busy taking stands on other stuff. The gospel has to come first. All these other things certainly matter. Don't misunderstand me. But we've got to get back to the basics. And so we've got to set our minds on things above, not on things of the earth. Why? Because we died with Christ. We are seeking those things that are Christ. Verse 5, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Do you know why Paul just told them to do that? To put that to death? Because they hadn't done it. That means these were people who had accepted the truth of the gospel and were still acting this way. Paul's saying, put that to death. He doesn't say try to stop. He says, kill that sucker. Get rid of it. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, but now you yourselves are to put off all of these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Therefore, there, whether, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, for, uh, but Christ is all in all. So all of these things we have put to death because we have risen with Christ. We are new, and we need to act new. Verse 12, therefore is the elect of God holy and beloved, that means set apart, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, seeking, uh, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever it is you do, in word or in deed, you do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Why? Because we've taken on his name. That means whatever you are doing, you are doing it in the name of Jesus, whether you're representing him in, in that moment or not. Because when you are looked upon, if you have professed Christianity, therefore you have taken his name, and therefore whatever it is that you are doing in that moment, you are representing Christ. That means when you're driving through Omaha, and there's six lanes of traffic, and they're all being idiots, and you've got some thoughts going through your head, like, what would happen if I just swerved at this one a little? Or you give them the one-finger salute to make sure they know that you know that they're idiots? You know what I'm talking about? Again, these are things that we react to emotionally, but it comes down to the truth. We represent Christ. And when you look at this, and you look at this putting off the old man and putting on the new, we have examples. Number one, we look at Jesus. What was the example that he did? He went about his entire life teaching, preaching, healing, and ultimately giving up his life for the message that he was preaching. His followers did the exact same thing. They went around teaching, preaching, healing, and ultimately gave up their life for what they believed. And here's the thing. They all were eyewitnesses of Jesus. They watched him. Most of them had been around at least since the time that he was baptized, up until the time of his death and resurrection and his ascension. And they saw him firsthand. They saw the miracles. They heard the preaching. They heard the teaching. They were there. But you and I were not. 
we have to take it off of somebody's testimony. Because if I were to ask you, who is Jesus? And how do we know about him? And what do we know about him? We have to begin to ask this question. What is it that we use to learn about Jesus? Well, that's very simple. It's this. It's this Bible. But what makes this true? It's not your belief in it that makes it true. It is true or not true based on its own merits. Not based off of your belief in it. Because if your belief in something makes it true, then when I was a kid wearing my Superman pajamas, jumping off the top of the bookshelf, I should have flown. I had the cape and everything. I fully believed. I was 100% convinced. I'm going to jump and I'm going to fly and it's going to be spectacular. And you know what it was? Painful. That's what it was. It hurt. So what do we know about this Jesus? Who is he? You may not realize this, but this is not the only source that contains truth about Jesus. Because there are all sorts of ancient writings. We use literature as one of these things. If every single New Testament was destroyed and not a single Bible was available, you could reconstruct the story of Jesus with great detail just from the impact on culture and the writings about this man that once existed. That's powerful if you start to think about it. Because one of the arguments against God and Christianity is that, well, we believe in a book that was written by man. And I'm like, hello, you got your information from a book that was written by man. We use these. And here's the thing. If we truly believed that we are just moist robots as a cosmic accident and there was no purpose in life, would it change the way that we behave? Absolutely. I mean, you think about this. Purpose matters. There is purpose found in everything. This here. Let me use this as an example. Now, if you didn't know what this is, and I know that you do, but if you had no idea what this is, you're walking in, you see this for the very first time, and you're like, what on earth is this? And you began to examine it, and you looked at it, and you're like, huh, interesting. What could I do with this? Well, you know, one thing you could do with it is you could stick it under a door to keep the door from closing, like a door opener. You could. It would probably work for a time. It wouldn't work great, but it would function as it. You might be able to drive in a small nail with it. I wouldn't suggest it, but you probably could. It would make a great thing to throw at your children when they're not listening to you. But here's the thing. If I wanted to know what this actually was and its useful purpose, what would I do? Well, if you open it up, inside here is a serial number. It's got the name of the manufacturer on it. Now, what would you do at that moment? You would Google it likely, and go to the source to find out its purpose. Are you guys tracking? In other words, we look at the manufacturer's mark to see what the purpose it is, what it has, what it's designed to do. I know we've all done this, but you ever open up like your dad's toolbox, your grandpa's toolbox, and they had some random tool in there, and you had no earthly idea what it was for, but you used it for something that it wasn't used for? I have hammered a lot of nails with things that weren't made to hammer nails, and I found some are fairly effective. When it comes demo time, you ever tear out sheetrock or lath and plaster, that disgusting stuff? What do you need to do that? Anything heavy and sharp. 
Don't have to be designed for that. You see, we go back to the source and the manufacture of it to see exactly what its purpose was for. And that's exactly what we are doing when we do this. Is we're going back to the source. Because I don't know if you know this, but there are a lot of heresies out there about Jesus. A lot of things written about Jesus, even at the time just after Jesus. And most of them are not true. But you've got all these scholars out there that are telling you, oh my goodness, Jesus had a wife, or Jesus did this, or Jesus did that. You've got people today that are like, well, Jesus wouldn't do that. He wouldn't say this. He wouldn't act that way. Oh my goodness, you're not representing him. The thing is, is what would motivate a person at that point to write a heresy about Jesus? And what would motivate a person today to tell a heresy about Jesus? There are three things that are components of every single basic lie that is out there or when you talk to uh, um, like detectives and things like that there are basically three things that are behind every crime scene okay there's a financial greed component a sexual lust component or a pursuit of power it can be more than one doesn't have to be all three but these three things are at the undergirding of every one of these a financial greed in other words there's money at hand a sexual lust in other words they're looking for something like that or a pursuit of power i want to have power over people and so the truth about jesus is that we have the liar must stand upon in order to tell those lies in other words they're mixing half truths in there some components about him And these early confirmation about Jesus, they would twist these stories back then and create these heresies. These non-canonical authors is what we call them. In other words, they're not a part of the canon of Scripture. But there's all these writings. Why would they do that? The first reason, they're trying to fill in the gaps. Because I don't know if you know this, but there are gaps in Scripture as far as time of what Jesus was out doing. Because it does not confirm or tell everything that he did. Why would they want to fill in the gaps? Because they're looking for something called nuance. There's a hidden truth in there, a claim that only they know. And you have to come to them in order to know it. I know something that no one knows. And if you want to know, you better follow me. Because that's how you're going to find it out. The other part is, is that they want to support a heresy. So if you're making a claim about Jesus, or you're making a claim at all, if you get the guy who started it all to confirm it, then it gives some credence. And how do you know if it's true or not? Were you there? No. Kind of like these, these memes you see on, online, you know, Abraham Lincoln that, that says don't follow memes or whatever. You know, all of these different things out there. I mean, somebody is going to fall for that stuff. There is a reason Nigerian princesses are looking for people to send money to because people fall for it. And we've got this part here. They're supporting a heresy. There are people who held to a religious worldview at that time that was contrary to God. But if they could get Jesus to support their idea, then it would give credence to their teaching. And you see Paul constantly addressing Gnostics in the New Testament. And Gnostics just means knowledge. They were searching for this esoteric knowledge. And so they would say, well, yes, Jesus said this. Jesus taught this. And they would begin to write these stories. And people would begin to believe it. The third part, and I said this, is to acquire power from some esoteric secret. You will be enlightened or you will be saved if you only know what I teach. We see these exact same things happening today that people are making claims about jesus what jesus never said or jesus taught we have to do something we have to go back to the source we have eyewitness testimony about him we have eyewitness testimonies and writings about his life we have 
prophetic writings about what he was coming to say and to do. And things took place in that nature. We have to go back to the source. You don't get to just claim that Jesus said. It would be no different if, if Kyle wasn't sitting here today. Okay, but everybody knows Kyle. I'm picking on you because you're closest to me. Okay, My wife is, but I have to deal with that when I go home. You have to deal with this when you go home. So it's different. It's, I don't mind making problems for other people. But if I said Kyle told me that she loves tropical snow. Right? Right. She's, whatever. It's her fa- in fact, it's the only thing she ever eats. What would you do to test that? I would go to the source. I would go and ask her, Kyle, did you really say this? Of course not. Because she's a hater. I'll pain you, but there you go. You see, the thing is, is that we're no longer doing that. We are regurgitating things we've heard without ever checking the source. In other words, we know what it is that we believe because we've been told something. And we've accepted that something is truth. But we've never asked the question, why is it true? And this is the world we live in today. Because the identity crisis inside of the church is going on. is because we have accepted a bunch of beliefs, but we've never asked the question, now wait a minute, how did you come to that conclusion? Do you know why we don't like to be questioned? We don't want anybody questioning our authority. We don't want anybody asking hard questions. When I was growing up, man, I struggled because I'm taught one thing in school and another thing at church, and those two worlds never seem to cross. And I would go to my pastor and I'd say, hey, why why do I not read about Moses? When I'm reading about Egyptian history, I do not read anything about Moses. And I'm no expert here, but when you get like a million plus people fleeing a nation and going through a Red Sea and like Pharaoh and his armies killed, that's kind of a big deal. It seems to have gotten missed somewhere. And then I go to science and biology class and they're telling me that God didn't create us, but we came from monkeys. It's the Gouda UV of the zoo. This is how we got here. It was a cosmic belch, and it blew up. And when it blew up, it created everything. And here we are today, and it's wonderful. But the Bible says this. And you know what his response was? You just got to believe. Is that a good response? But that is the response we get, isn't it? You have to have faith. Now, I was willing to deal with that. But many today aren't. Because there was always this tension that I just couldn't address. And, and it's like, okay, fine. You know, I don't understand everything. I'm no expert in Scripture. I'm certainly no expert in biology. You know, it just is what it is. You're wrong, and you're wrong because I say you're wrong. That's a problem. You see, deception is going around the world today because we don't stand on truth. We stand on what we want to believe. The reason that Jesus is being portrayed as some hippie flower child that just accepts everybody the way that they are and he loves them just the way that they are is because not only have we changed the description of Jesus, we've changed the definition of love, we've changed the definition of all sorts of words to make it fit what we want to be true. And because of that, we should go back to the source to see if what is being said is true. But what do we do? That makes sense to me. That's good enough. This is the world that we're in today. This is beyond just biblical stuff. This is everything around us. We never ask these questions. These lies are being perpetrated, and these things are going forth, and they're questioning Scripture, and we don't even know why we believe Scripture. We just believe it. And your belief in it doesn't make it true, no matter how hard you want it to be. I mean, goodness. Look at Genesis chapter 3. We've seen this happen over and over. Verse 1, now the serpent 
was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And a woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food. And it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. And she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves a covering. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of this because we've been teaching through Genesis on Wednesday nights, but here's the bottom line. What did he do? He questioned the undergirded authority. And her response was one of, well, he did say, but then he came back, and he says, yeah, but you're not going to die because God knows that you'll be just like him. And she began to question. She's like, you know, it looks good. I bet it tastes good. And I want to be wise. So she fell for it. That's no different than Jesus embraces you the way that you are. It's the same thing that we're doing today. We begin to question God's words and because we're not solid in our foundation, we'd be like, well, maybe. Maybe that is true. 60-plus-year-old man calling me on a Friday night asking what would be rudimentary questions under most circumstances because he's had an awakening. He's realized his entire life he has all these beliefs, but he has no foundation. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, there's a whole lot going on here, but he's tempted. And what was his response? Going back to the Word of God. Okay? We're just going to leave it at that for today. Then the devil took him up in the holy city. Where's that? It's Jerusalem to the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Now, what's he doing? He's questioning his positioning. Because Jesus has not declared himself to be the Son of God. Satan is not all-knowing. All right? He may be literally asking the question because he's not sure, but I'm going to figure it out. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Why would he say that? Because it could happen. For it is written... He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your, fa- uh, your foot against the stone. And Jesus said, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, what did he just do there? He quoted scripture. Before he questioned, in the, in the garden, he questioned the words of God. And then he placed doubt on the words of God. And here, standing next to the Son of God, not only did he say, if you are, do this, then he says, here is what scripture says. Is that what Scripture says? Absolutely. It's a direct quote out of the book of Psalms. Is that what Scripture means? No. Or we could all go bungee jumping without the bungee. Like if you want to go skydiving, you only need a parachute if you want to do it twice. Verse 8, again, the devil took him on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. 
two times we see two examples of a tempter coming in and questioning the authority of the word. One of which, Jesus, uses Scripture against Scripture to overcome the temptation. What did he do? He went back to the source. You see, the problem we have today is in the church today, we are moved by what we want to believe as true and what feels good in the moment. We are moved in this world and we allow things to go on because we will not boldly take a stand. If Jesus was faced, not by Satan himself, but by any man that came to him and began to make those same accusations and those same questions, how would he respond in the exact same way? But how does the church today, when culture around us is, is on its way to hell as fast as it can get there, is questioning the Bible and twisting Scripture, what do we do? Well, Jesus would not confront them. He would love them. He'd let them see His actions, and through which they will see that mercy is there, and they will come to know Him and love Him. No, they weren't. He said, I came to bring a sword. He's not out there skipping through the tulips. That's the problem is because we have no foundation to stand upon. Our beliefs are out there, but we don't know why we've come to these conclusions. That is just understanding God itself. Then you can get into the whole denominational thing of which parts of it are true and which parts aren't. And you could really drill down. You know, it's really simple. If God said it, therefore I'm going to believe it. And this is not that complicated, but what do we do? We make it complicated. See, the problem we have is that we preach loudly with no foundation we are nothing but clanging symbols making noise and we do not have the moral fortitude and the understanding of what we believe to actually make an educated stand against somebody who is coming against us we will fall for those temptations in second timothy chapter 4 verse 1 it says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. He says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Paul talking to Timothy, he said the day's coming where they're going to have itching ears. And according to their desires, not God's desires, but their desires, they will heap up teachers for themselves that will allow them to do whatever it is that they want. This is what we do. It's called confirmation bias. When we already have a previously held belief, we're not looking for facts. We're looking for confirmation of what we believe. We do this in the church all the time. I already believe this. Let me just go find some verses that might support that. That's called eisegesis. That's not where we want to be. It's a big theological word. Exegesis is where Scripture interprets Scripture. In other words, what does God say? Because what God says matters, in my opinion, is irrelevant. Here it is today. We see this very thing going on. And why did Paul warn Timothy, the pastor of Ephesus, because it was going new. nothing new here. This is the same stuff that's been going on and on and on and on and on and on and on. From the very beginning, we see it. The questioning of God's word. Did God really say? And what did Eve want? She wanted that fruit. She wanted to be wise, and he said it. So maybe that's not what God meant. And that's what we do today. In Romans chapter 16, verse 7, it says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you learn. Avoid them. For those 
who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. So now Paul's warning the Romans that these people are coming in. They don't serve Jesus, but they serve themselves. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his apostles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things that are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of Scripture. Now, this is interesting. Because there's a couple of things that were just said here. We're going to read the rest in a minute. There's two parts here. Paul wrote in epistles things that are hard to understand. I think we would all agree with that. There are parts of it a little confusing and we need to do some homework on it and some study on it. But untaught and unstable people twist their own, uh, to their own destruction. In other words, they're making truth claims about it, but they don't know why they're saying that. They're just saying what feels good. It goes along with the other ones that we're reading. And then Peter says this, as they do also with the rest of the Scriptures. Now what does that mean? That means Peter just called Paul's epistles Scripture. You guys see that? In other words, Peter, one of the twelve, has declared Paul's writings as Scripture. That's a foundational belief. Why did Paul's books get picked up and the rest of them not? Because he was writing Scripture. You guys see that? This did not happen at the Council of Nicaea. This happened because it was the truth. Verse 17, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So he's telling them, you, you know this going in. Beware. Because you can fall just like they did. And what does he say at the end? Grow in the grace and knowledge of what? Our Lord and our Savior. You see, there's two parts there. A lot of us have made him a Savior. Few of us have made him our Lord. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods, which God created to be received in thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So who said this? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God said this. Who wrote it down? Paul did. In latter times, when were latter times? Well, then was latter time, so what does that mean for us? We're really laddered. They're going to depart from the faith. Why? They give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrine of demons. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I marvel, that's a big word, he's shocked, that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. That means that there is more than one, right? which is not another. Oh, wait, he corrected that. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, 
I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now this is big. Because he's shocked that the church of Galatia has already begun to turn their back from the gospel that was presented to them to a different one, which isn't really a gospel at all, but it is perceived as one. It's being portrayed as one, but it's not really one. And some of them who trouble you want to pervert it. What does that even mean? That means they want to twist it to their desires. Does that sound familiar? And some are going to fall for it. And what does he say? Anybody. Whether it's us who preach the first gospel or an angel from heaven, if they preach any gospel other than what we have already preached, let them be accursed. This is the Acts 17.11 where Paul is talking about the Bereans and said they're more noble than the Thessalonians because they listen with readiness of heart to the words I have to say. But then they search the scriptures daily to see if what I said is true. When a claim is made about Scripture, we should not just accept it, whether I say it, whether anybody else say it, we should begin to search Scripture to see if those things are true. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's the last one. Verse 1. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, what does that mean? That means that Paul has led these people. Remember, it's the bride of Christ. He has led these people to salvation. He has betrothed them. He has set this up. But I fear, verse 3, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Now, let's stop for a minute. He just made a bunch of statements here. Number one, he's comparing it back to the beginning. Even the serpent. She was led away, deceived by his craftiness. And just like that, that your minds might be corrupted from the simplicity that is Christ. Because if someone preaches another Jesus, either a whole different one, or you began to change his attributes, either way, or if they, you receive a different spirit, what's that, the Holy Spirit, something completely different, or a different gospel, there we have it again, that you may put up with it. I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am untrained in speech. Yet I am not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted? Because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge. I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from the boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you, God knows, verse 12. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. In other words, we need to be on guard because there are some 
who present themselves as an authority figure when it comes to the things of Christ. Whether that be in person, that be on TV, that be online, that be on Facebook, TikTok, whatever. And they're making true claims about Jesus and His teaching and His beliefs and all of this stuff. But these are false apostles, deceitful workers who transform themselves into apostles of Christ. You see, we are guided away. The reason we don't have an identity as a church today is because we have no foundation that has been laid upon. We have this brick and we've got that brick. And we built the bricks and we know the what's. But to get to the what's, you have to start with the why's. And the why's are who Jesus was. Understanding what Scripture is. Not a book, but a collection of writings, 66 individual books written by over 40 authors on three continents over a 1,500-year span. And yet, it is completely cohesive. Many of these people never met one another. That's powerful. You can't fake that. This was given by inspiration of God to men who were sold out to Him. Today, we don't have that foundation. Jesus is who you want Him to be. And what does the Bible call that? We've created a God in our image, according to our likeness, how we want Him to be. We've got to get back to the foundation and understanding why it is we believe what we believe. You can't have identity until you understand why. It's kind of like with your children. Do they want to brush their teeth every day? No. Is there a reason why? Yes. If you just tell them to go brush their teeth, they may blindly follow. But if you never tell them why, they may, when they're on their own, be able to make their own decision, be like, I don't know why I do this. I'm going to stop. Because we don't want you to have to go buy teeth. That's why. There are things, like that, as simple as that is, that's where we are with the gospel. We know what, and we behave on what, but we don't know why. We've got to begin to get back to that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, and we thank you that it is our guide. And we thank you that you have kept it for us, Lord, and that you are opening our hearts in a way that we can grow in it and understand it, Lord. That we can act out as you have called us to do. That we can say your words and do your actions, Lord, to be a part of your kingdom, to go into this world and preach that gospel, Lord. The only gospel, the only gospel who sets people free. Lord, I thank you that you have provided a way for us and that we will not take time for granted and we will not take days for granted, Lord, and we will not take opportunities for granted. But each and every day is a day that we get to live on this earth for you, knowing that in the end that our lives will be glorified and lifted up with you. But right now, Lord, we are here to be your hands and your feet and your mouthpiece, Lord, and I thank you that you are equipping us and and encouraging us and giving us the boldness that we need to stand up on the things that matter preaching the truth at all times, willingly laying down our life if necessary, and never backing down from any persecution that arises, Lord, that we can glorify you in every aspect of our lives. We thank you, Jesus, for every opportunity. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys have a great week. We'll see you soon.